right. Um, men's breakfast, potluck, Sorheim's car. Got it. Everything's out of the way. Uh, first Corinthians, and read through verse 17. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation of silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask for just the right attitudes of, of humility towards um, that we would rejoice in knowing that our foundation is sure and that you're building something that we can't build and that the end, the end of this construction project is stupefyingly glorious. <laughs> Thank you for your word and pray that it would uh, be ministered effectively to each Christian here, to each one here. Bless us with every gift we need to glorify you and build your church. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So you may have noticed, if you were paying attention to that passage, that this passage has uh, maybe more than its fair share of of warning. Um, There's some fire mentioned. I don't know if you caught that part. Uh, But it's it's truly full of grace. Um, There's a building that you're a part of, and... It will be tested, but we're given a promise to be sure. It's a passage, too, of encouragement. It's encouraging us and and Paul's readers, of course, to build well, to take heed how you build on the foundation that is Christ. Uh, There's an encouragement to fulfill your ministries. But the greater encouragement, once again, is that Christ is the foundation, and he will finish the good work he's begun. And he'll defend his temple. In fact, if someone tries to defile the temple, God destroys him. So there's that. We have work to do. We see that in this passage. But God has done a good work. And that's an assurance that we can place both feet on. We have work to do, but we see in this passage right there in verse 9 that God is our fellow worker. So we can have confidence when we put our hand to the work ahead of us. Now a little bit of review here in Corinthians. The Corinthian church is divided. Um, Now because the church model at the time was probably more of a house church because those are the buildings you've got available to you in the 50s AD, not a lot of cathedrals yet. So when we're, we say the church was divided, we're, we're not talking about a division, you know, that's due to location. You know, there's a church in, the, uh, you know, in, in uh, Chloe's household, we read about them. There's a church over there in that, that other house. That's fine. Those churches can be an example of unity even while they're meeting in separate places. What zip code you're in in Corinth doesn't matter. The kind of division that the Corinthians dealt with was what Paul called contentions or schisms, which is a medical word of bones breaking. 
In chapter 1, verse 11, he calls it, he says there's contentions among you. We read that they were, they were fighting with each other. They didn't bring each other to court. So that gives you an idea of what kind of division existed, how far it had gone. They were suing each other. Okay, the Christians in Corinth were suing each other. But it, it seems like the root of this division, it was not civil or legal, but rather theological and liturgical. Okay, theology is what you believe about God, what you know about God. Liturgy is how you as a church gather to worship the God you believe in. It's kind of how you do church, okay? We wouldn't really call it this, but like our liturgy is a psalm and then maybe an announcement and then for disagreements about that kind of thing, how you do church and who talks in church and when they talk in church. Um, your, theolo- your theological tradition uh, usually has something to do with the kinds of people you agree with. Um, if you are a Lutheran, you try to follow the teachings more or less of Martin Luther some of them, uh, and, and you know, the first followers of, of Luther thought that Luther probably figured out pretty well how church should go. Uh, the churches in Corinth were forming these prims way, his style, and then th- there was Peter, who did a lot of work in Rome, where many of the Christians in Corinth had come from when they got kicked out of Rome, um, and so they wanted to do things Peter's way, and, and there were theological traditions and opinions about liturgy, how church should go, that differed between these camps. And so these tiny little factions were chinks in They're all the same, same guys doing the same job, or doing jobs dip, slightly different ways. Paul planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. And he says the one who sows and the one who waters are one. The divisions in the church of Corinth were laughable if it, they weren't so sad. It'd be like a fight breaking out at a football game, which may not seem so unusual, except at this time the fans that are fighting are fans of the same team, and they're all arguing that their team is the best when it's the same team. Like, they've all got matching jerseys, and they're just punching each other. And you've got, like, you know, they're, they're, they're arguing about who, like, the, the linebacker versus the quarterback or just, you know, fight. I'm really bad at sports analogies and sermons. I'm pretty sure that doesn't make sense, though. Okay? So, right? Uh, so Paul is attempting, I believe, to heal the rift at the source, in part by showing how ridiculous the fight was in the first place, And now he's assuring all the different factions that their leaders are actually united. So in verse 9, he's talking about himself. He's talking about Apollos. He's talking about Peter, who he calls Cephas. And and the other leaders of the church that are unnamed. He says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. So there's, there's a plurality of leaders. The we are just one field. And there's just one building. There's a lot of people working on the building, but it's still just one building. Paul says of himself and the other pastors and leaders, we're God's fellow workers. Now, that's pretty incredible. In other translations, this will read, we are co-laborers with God. There's many titles for God that that you know, that you've read in Scripture, um, in many ways to describe who he is and what he does, who he is to us. God is king or the building. Later in Paul's writings, he's... Uh, he'll include those same people as workers too. And in the book of Hebrews, the immature are scolded, much like in, much like in Corinthians, saying, the, the author of Hebrews says, by now you ought to be teachers. Um, so while in this passage, this particular passage, there is a tiered hierarchy, Paul is saying that he is the fellow God. This idea develops further in scripture to show that the ideal is that every single person, each one, in the church is to see themselves as fellow workers with God. 
That phrase, each one, shows up several times, and we'll talk about it a little bit later. So while we see Paul make his argument here based on the leaders of the church in order to show that the leaders are united with God, the trajectory of the argument is obvious. Just like we, the apostles, Paul's saying, and church leaders could see themselves as fellow workers with God. They could see themselves as one. The, the members of the church would also be able to see themselves as co-workers with God and see themselves as one. The apostles' job was to take baby Christians and lead them to the maturity where they could realize that God is their co-worker in this grand enterprise called the kingdom of God. In other words, I, I want you to be sure that while in this context he's saying we're fellow God's workers, in the greater context of Paul's writings, and even later on in Corinthians, when he starts talking about gifts and ministries, the, the end of this argument is that each one of you is to consider yourself as God's co-laborer. As we saw in previous sermons, we're not supposed to stay babies. While you were an infant in the faith, you needed milk simply to grow. The idea is that you will mature and eat meat in order to work, but you're not working alone. Foundation, while another builds the rest of the house. Uh, this idea of laying the foundation is central to Paul's personal understanding of his mission. In Romans 15, 20, he says, I've made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. Paul saw himself as a missionary uh, to unreached people groups. He's a church planter. This was his calling to get the gospel to the people who have never heard it before. This is the kind of missionary work your missionaries are sent to areas where churches already exist. And again, the one who waters, that's good and right and needed. But unless someone plants, there's not going to be anything to water. So for Paul, apostleship, which carries this idea of being the one who is sent, apostleship meant being sent to those that grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He's kind of borrowing that from the same idea in Corinthians. He says, apostles and prophets lay foundations. That's, the, that's their calling. They plant churches. And he says, it was according to the grace of God, which was given to me. The word grace there is very close, same root to the word gifts. Paul is specially gifted and graced with the wisdom to plant churches. This is important in its context of 1 Corinthians, where Paul is going to spend a few chapters telling the Corinthians the right way to view their spiritual gifts. Remember, the Corinthians' big problem, one of their many big problems, was that they wanted to use spiritual things selfishly, which isn't very spiritual. Paul, by contrast, will tell them that the gifts are given to each one for all, showing the church showing that church planting, evangelism, laying the foundation, this is also spiritual anointing. While the charismatic Corinthians would probably use signs and wonders and speaking in tongues as a sort of metric to judge how spiritual a church is, how alive a church is, Paul has come in now and pointed out that the real metric of spiritual maturity is how well you love each other and how well you're planting churches. Paul was the one who laid foundations. He says that was a, a gift, that was a grace that was given to him. Apollos and others built from there, and they were gifted for those ministries. But they're not the only ones. He says, let each one take heed how he builds on it. These words, each one, which you've already heard in this sermon, are repeated in 1 Corinthians 17 times, which is a lot. 
and most notably, perhaps, in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, these schisms, which lead, will lead to both spiritual and mathematical individualism. Eventually, you'll just have a church by yourself in it, and you'll be the most holy church there is. It'll be great. Paul is saying each one, each individual, each faction has a God-given responsibility of building the church. But to the community of the church, he says, in essence, take heed to each other. He says that he and Apollos, these two people with who the Corinthians saw as two heads of two different factions are actually on the same team. So he's telling them, instead of looking at us as if we were divided, look to yourselves and see what you're contributing. Let each one take heed how he builds on this church. We're doing the work of Christ here, not the work of Paul, Apollos, Peter, or you. I want you to know this. It's the job of pastors and leaders to build the church by equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And that ministry is church building. It is the work of every, every, um, every Christian to build the church by their God-given ministries. So you have a role in building God's church. And Paul says, watch yourself. Take heed how you are building on this foundation of the apostles and prophets. The foundation that is Christ. You are all construction workers. You might be bad ones. Then that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Well, you could replace hope with church. Our church is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Of course, this verse precludes any sort of cult or weak Christianity that would remove Christ from his central place. If you're resting all your weight, so to speak, on a doctrine or a person that is not Jesus Christ, then as the song says, all other ground is seeking sinking sand. Jesus must be the main thing. He must He must be central to the establishment of the church and the growth and maintenance of the church and fellowship with him is the goal of the church. But honestly, that's not really the main point Paul is making. The point he's making is that each individual servant of God, each one, this is you. While they may be diverse in giftings and ministries, each one is still building the same building and thus each one is one with each other. Yeah, the guy putting up walls and another guy's installing windows and someone else is going to be on the roof later putting up shingles. But all those tasks are worthless if there's nothing to build on. If there's no foundation, those jobs are, are pointless. And all those jobs are held up by the one foundation that is Jesus. It's the same building we're all building. Now, this is very serious business because as we'll see, we are building and being built. There's a reality of Christian unity. Whether you act like it or not, whether you believe it or not, you are one. You are one with every other believer. But the next thing that should cause in you is a healthy reverence and fear in light of the importance and holiness of the task. You are building with those around you, but you're not responsible for their work. You will be held responsible for the quality of you, and you're building a temple. Read uh, from 12 through 15. It says, now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Now, I don't mind telling you that this is a scary passage. Uh, It's scary first because there's no way you 
You know, there's other verses that you can immediately make very comfortable just by applying them to other people. And then you're like, that's a beautiful passage. It's my life verse for everyone else. Um, but you, you can't really do that here because there's that all-inclusive phrase that Paul uses in Corinthians 17 times in order to include every last person there, each one. Each one's work will become clear. There will be a time when you will be inspected and everything you've done. That's scary. And then it seems to get worse because there's fire. <laughs> I don't love that. And it's, it's totally true that it says that the work becomes clear and the fire tests the work. So maybe while my work is being you know, sent through this, this furnace, I can stand back be, behind some heavenly heat-proof wall, perhaps. I'd like that very much. But, but then Paul, who does some, sometimes bring his metaphors to their breaking point, and sometimes he mixes his metaphors the, you know, in a confusing way, but he says here that you, you build on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, hay, straw, and then in verse 16 he says, and you're the temple, by the way. You're the material here, which makes me think the building materials are not so easily separated from the builder. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, you are being built together into a holy dwelling place for God in the Spirit. First, uh, First Peter chapter two, verse five says, "You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house." So I'm not sure how far away from the fire you can plan on being. Um. Now, <laughs> this passage and and this passage alone is the closest thing to purgatory you'll ever read about here, right? And that idea may have some, you know, baggage in the back of your mind. Obviously, it's not even close to what might come into your mind uh, when you hear that word. Uh, there's a lot of make-believe around that word, and it's, it's not a place. But what the word means there to purge, this idea of, of a purging is a, is a cleansing. And there will be a time in your future when your salvation is made complete. When a final cleansing takes place. Now, we need to back up there and get our feet on some solid ground, right? The foundational truth here in this passage is Jesus Christ. The foundation, Jesus Christ takes away sins. It is always and only by the blood of Jesus that we have forgiveness of sins. So you're thinking, what is this about? Why would there be the, uh, a, a judgment for a Christian or an inspection, a giving of account? I thought we were going to pass from judgment into life immediately. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Jesus has completely cleansed you from sin. And this passage, this fire, is not... It's not about hell. The one who has his work burned is not himself burned up. Verse 15, again, it says, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yes, so as through fire. So it's not about the, the condition of the soul or the salvation of the soul. Paul's not talking about anyone going to hell, and he's writing this book to saints who are with Christ. That's, we saw that in chapter 1. But Paul did not write about this fire that burns in order to make you comfortable. <laughs> So we have to lean in a little bit. One of the reasons he writes this to the divisive Corinthians is to make them uncomfortable by showing them they will answer for how they are building God's church. They will have their works put through the fire. There will be a purging. And now once more, it is Christ and Christ alone that deals with every sin. He has delivered you from the penalty of sin. He is right now by his spirit delivering you from the power of sin. And he will, after your death, or in what Paul calls the day, he will, by his grace, burn away with fire all that is unworthy in your works. And it hurt a little bit. But I also want you to see very clearly that this passage is filled with mercy. 
When Paul says that the one who works, the one whose works are burned is saved as through fire, we all breathe out a sigh of relief, right? We're like, okay, at least, at least we're in. But that, that sigh should be a little bit longer because what we're also able to say is that, now I hope that you and I and all of us are ready to go to heaven and that I hope you are not attached to the things of earth. We desire them to go, grow strangely dim, right? And I hope that you have the attitude of looking for the blessed hope which is a sanctifying kind of hope in itself. I hope that we're all anxiously awaiting Christ's return. But I also hope you realize that today, in your current state of sanctification, you're not ready for heaven. But he can make you so. Paul himself says, I have not yet attained. We're not there yet. Like We're not, we're not as perfect as we will be in heaven, right? And we all expect that when we get to heaven, Christ will make us wholly, entirely, and completely. What Paul is reminding the Corinthians is that in that day, when you are made ready, this is so fun. I love that this is just going on. I like Yosemite. That's fine. We'll watch Yosemite. Um, what Paul's, hmm? Let's see. I usually don't. There you go. Well, there's a plug right there. Um, We all expect that when we get to heaven, Christ will make us holy. And that is a hope that will not disappoint. What Paul is reminding the Corinthians is that in that day, when you are made ready, it's a fire that makes you clean. It's, it's the things of earth, those worthless building materials, the division and the schisms and the arrogance that they were bringing to church with them every week. God had every intention of burning that stuff up with a heavenly fire. And again, while this could be scary, especially if you're one that's defiling the temple of God with your divisiveness, but it's a passage filled with mercy. There are things that cling to you even now, unholy thoughts, ungodly intentions, um, the, the, the things you've uh, offered to the Lord that are defiled, <laughs> that aren't perfect, the ungratefulness in your heart, resentment towards other believers, the bitterness, it is your work and, and your heart's condition that is building the church. Your life, your Christian growth, the relationships that you have in the church, that is what is meant by building the church, right? I mean, we say this all the time, like, oh, the church isn't a building. Well, what is it? Well, it's, it's people, right? It's people together. So what does it mean to build the church with gold, gold silver, precious stones? That is you and other people. It is the condition of your soul and the relationship of your soul to other believers. That's it. There's nothing else that you can identify as the church. So that work, the work in you and the work that you do with the people around you will be tested. This is what we build on the foundation that is Christ. And not all of that work, not all of your heart's meditation can be called gold, silver, and precious stones. But if it's not, again, cling to this mercy, it doesn't follow you into heaven. C.S. Lewis wrote on this concept, this idea. He said, would it not break the heart? If God said to us, it is true, my son, that your breath smells and your rags drip with mud and slime, but we are charitable here. No one will upbraid you with these things, nor draw away from you. Enter into the joy. 
Should we not reply with submission, sir, and if there's no objection, I'd rather be cleaned first. It may hurt, you know. Even so, sir. It is the mercy of God that he will not allow any of your failures into heaven. It is the mercy of God that he has lit a fire that is capable of removing your mistakes as well as your sins. Can we rejoice in this? While at the same time taking special care to Paul's words in verse 10, let each one take heed how he builds on it. Take the warning with the mercy and then go build the church. The takeaway that Paul intends is this. Build well. You don't want to suffer loss. With gold, that's better. We don't want to suffer loss. You want to build a good building. You want to approach this building project with awe and reverence and care, knowing that it is a holy thing that we are handling. The temple of God is holy, so take care how you treat it. And then in, in case they missed it so far, Paul writes, you're the temple. In case I wasn't clear about this, verse 16 says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the temple of God dwells in you? Or sorry, the spirit of God. I just like the word temple. That the spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now, usually when we think of this verse, we think of the second time it's quoted, this concept is quoted in 1 Corinthians 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now with that verse in chapter 6, it's especially easy to come to the conclusion that your individual body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Each one of you is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're each a separate temple. And I think there's definitely an argument for that interpretation in chapter 6. That's, that's not a bad way to read chapter 6. The Holy Spirit, the gathering of the saints in unity around the one cornerstone Christ is where the Spirit dwells. We are temples, yes, but in an equally real way, we are stones in a greater temple. We are the bride of Christ, not you individually, we as we guard ourselves, we take heed to ourselves, we are looking at our own individual. Am I, am I, are there sins that I need to repent of? Is there, is there a ministry that I need to pursue? You're asking those questions not just so that you can become your best person. You're asking those questions because you are a load-bearing pillar in the church of God, and we're depending on you. We need each stone to be sound, the church apart. And Paul who's already brought the fire by saying, your works will be tested. He goes one step further and says, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. And what's the temple? It's the church. So there's two questions we're left with, and both are sobering. The first is, how am I building this temple? Am I a stone in this temple so my personal holiness and maturity affects the temple as a whole? The church is me and the people around me. Um, the way I build is how I am connected to the other living stones around me. That is my ministry. You, do not, you are not called to a ministry to yourself. No one is called to minister to themselves. You are called to minister to the church of God. 
I am a stone in this. And then the next question, what if it's worse than that? <laughs> Have I contributed to division in the church? There are those whose God will destroy. There are those who God will destroy because they have defiled the temple. I don't want to look anything like those people. I don't want to look anything like the divisive Corinthians who are at risk of becoming temple defilers. By not walking in unity with other believers, they were attempting to build on a foundation other than Christ. This is Paul's foundation. This is Apollo's foundation. Those temples and the ones that build them will be revealed by fire. May God give us grace to see that we are sitting God's fellow workers. And may God grant us grace to see that we're sitting around living stones that are being built up together. May God give us grace to see that each one of us has been called to build the same building. May God give us a healthy awe and fear of the day in which we will need to give account for our actions May God deliver us from anything, grant us mercy. It will be pure and undefiled, but it will be strong and indestructible. Thank you for granting us a place in it. Thank you for allowing us to have some part in this grand thing that you call the church, the kingdom of God. Bless us. Bless us with an awareness of the quality of our work. Bless us with the full assurance of faith, knowing that you've begun a good work. You will be faithful to complete it. But Lord, guard our hands. Even as you strengthen our hands, guard our hands from, in, from touching anything that needs to be burned up later. Let us use our t time well, Lord. Teach us to number our days. We may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to use our time, our energies, our, our, our gifts in the ministries that you've called us to to build well. God, thank you for building your church. We set our feet on Christ, the solid rock, on the firm foundation, the chief cornerstone. All our hope is in you. Lead us to work in a way that glorifies and honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise His Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, you are sent. Go make disciples. Build a good building. You're welcome.